Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to Wednesday Night Bible Study. Uh, Pastor Steve Jerusalem here, First Baptist Church of Artesia. We are in uh, part four of our study on the Acts of the Apostles. And just a reminder, if you're listening to this on podcast, uh, we make all of these available on podcast on Wednesday about 8 o'clock in the evening. We do it live here in the sanctuary from 7 o'clock to, to 8 o'clock. So if you want to come to the sanctuary, uh, you can do that and you can participate in the audience with the Bible study. There's no restrictions uh, on that uh, from the governor. We are restricted for our Sunday worship service, but we're not restricted for Bible study. So you can come out to Bible study if you feel comfortable doing so. If not, uh, obviously it's the podcast. So, last week where we were at, Peter and John were going up into the temple. This is after the day of Pentecost. This was after the giving of the Holy Spirit, the promise of Jesus to have the the Holy Spirit uh, come. And uh, uh, so that the church would be empowered to do ministry. And so uh, they were going up into the temple. They saw a lame man. He was uh, uh, someone who had been there since his birth, uh, begging uh, for alms. And uh, they looked at him and they said, silver and gold I do not have for you, but what I have for you, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, rise and walk. And so this miracle took place in the temple. And people were amazed at this. And then Peter preaches a second sermon, which begins in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, to the end of the chapter. And then where we're at today, we pick up at what happens right after he finishes his second sermon. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So the early church right here, uh, after the second sermon, is already about 5,000 people based on two sermons, uh, this one obviously in the temple. The the first one was also in the temple as well. So uh, what you have here is is they're preaching in the temple. Uh, You know, sometimes today we kind of say, well, maybe we shouldn't preach here, we shouldn't preach there. They were in the temple. They were preaching against uh, what they knew was the doctrine of the Jews. They were uh, preaching Jesus in a place where people were still uh, wanting to be under the law. So they're in the temple preaching Jesus. And then the Sadducees come up to them. And then, Now the Sadducees were the religious party that was in charge of the temple service. So yet Pharisees, they were not in charge of uh, any of the temple service. They were more of a kind of an organization uh, of, 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 uh, of at one time religious men. Uh, Pharisees. By the time of Jesus, they were more political outfit. They were, it was more about them than it was about Scripture at that point. But one time they were a very devout group. But the recognized uh, official religious party of the Jews was the Sadducees. And so they were the ones who ruled in the temple. They were the ones who uh, 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 compromised a lot of the Sanhedrin, although which was the ruling class, although Pharisees were also in the uh, uh, Sanhedrin as well. 
So it says that the uh, uh, Sadducees were there and they came to them and people were coming to faith in them. But they laid hands on them and they put them in jail for preaching the gospel. Now, this still goes on today. There's places in the world where you will be put in jail for preaching the gospel. And so if we think at some point in time there isn't going to be a pushback on us preaching the gospel, we're sadly mistaken because there will be and and can be a pushback from those who don't want us preaching the gospel and they'll go so far as to put us in jail. And the early history of the of the early church, uh, we were put in jail. Uh, we were also thrown to the lions, you know, the, the Colosseum in Rome. That's what all that was about. So the church has been persecuted from day one for preaching the gospel. But this does not stop Peter and John. They go right to the heart of it, and they are thrown in jail. So now verse 5. It says, And it came about on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And and when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? They're referring to the miracle of the, of the uh, lame man. You know, here this miracle happens, and basically they're put in jail for preaching a sermon, and a miracle has taken place. You know, you would think that people would be, uh, you know, awestruck and wanting to know and, and, and gathering around, uh, uh, you know, the authority. And, you know, we know it's the name of Jesus. Uh, the authority has been given by Christ to do this. You would think that they would rally around that, but they don't. They're questioning them. Uh, so they're in jail being questioned about a miracle. And realize that this miracle happened outside of their traditions and their beliefs. Because they're under the law, under the law of Moses. They're uh, uh, very much works orientated. And so this miracle happens, and it's a threat to them. And so, you know, you can do one of two things when something like this happens. Either you can go with it and say, this is what God is doing now, and follow it, or you can oppose it. And this is exactly what happened. They decided to oppose it the same way they opposed Jesus' teaching when he was alive. Um, So this is what you have going on there. In verse 8, verse 8 to 12, it says, Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the important part of of, uh, Pentecost. Uh, You know, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, in the giving of the Holy Spirit that the believer is now filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 says that the uh, that we will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do ministry, to preach the gospel, you know, to all the ends of the earth. So here you have verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. In other words, he's speaking under the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. He said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today, for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, 
but which became the very cornerstone. And then verse 12, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that have been given among men by which we have been saved. Those couple of verses right there is a lot of theology, a lot of really solid uh, theology 101. Uh, so what you have here is Peter's test testifying about Jesus as Messiah. And, you know, four things here. First, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the importance of the Holy Spirit to the believer. It enables us to do ministry. And as we uh, talked about in our evangelism class, is that, you know, we are the messengers. We give deliver the messenger. We deliver the message, but it's the Holy Spirit that convicts the individual. It is the Holy Spirit that actually brings them uh, to salvation, that uh, touches their heart. We deliver the message. So here he is filled, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and then um, and then the second thing, he's on trial for a miracle, which makes no sense at all. I mean, think about it. A miracle occurs, and he's on trial for this. He's being questioned about a miracle. Uh, and then the third thing is, he makes it clear that the miracle was done through Christ, through Jesus Christ, Messiah. And then the fourth thing pointed out here is that Jesus is the cornerstone or the foundation stone uh, is, is, is Jesus. And there's uh, actually one other thing, salvation through Christ alone. So all this is brought out in the scripture. So let me go one by one here through this. Uh, verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, uh, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well. And here it is. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. So he's going right at it. He's going right to the belief system, the prevailing belief systems, all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ in Nazarene, and then he makes it the point, as he did in his first sermon and his second sermon, he says, whom you crucified, okay, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This is important because this is a doctrine statement. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. It's not about Jesus just going on the cross. It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension seated at the right hand of the Father that finishes the work. It says, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. So in other words, he makes it real clear. It's nothing by what we did. We didn't conjure anything up. It's not by our power, our strength. It's, it's, it's because we have followed Jesus Christ. We are doing what Jesus told us to do, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. And then verse 11, and this is important. He says, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, by which uh, became the very cornerstone. In other words, everything in our faith begins with Jesus Christ. You know, and this is this is important for them to understand that the Bible that they had, and the Bible that we know as the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament, is pointing towards the cross. It's pointing towards the redemptive work of God. It's pointing to what God is doing. That's why when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished, he's talking about everything that was being pointed towards has now come, has now happened. Jesus is now on the cross. 
So in other words, now faith, everything that we do that pertains to God is through Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. And that is why in John's gospel, he makes a point uh, to point out that nothing was created that has been created that was not created through Jesus because he was there in the beginning. Talking about triune God, that he was there in the beginning. So, you know, this is the cornerstone of our faith. So that anything that we do as a church, as believers in Jesus Christ, uh, any action that we take, we have to understand uh, that Jesus is the cornerstone. We're building upon that. That's why it's in First Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that, you know, I'm a master builder because I build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and you can't build on anything other than Jesus Christ. So Paul picks this up later on, and, you know, he just affirms it, what Peter is saying here that Jesus is the cornerstone. And they would understand that because, you know, the temple, what's very important when you make a building is the very first cornerstone, the very first stone that you lay because every other stone is now going to be laid in adjacent or on top of that stone. So that stone has to be perfectly set. If it's not perfectly set, then your building, your structure is going to be off. So for the church, if we are not built upon Jesus Christ, then we're going to be off. We are going to be off kilter. We're, we're, it's not going to work. Uh, so we have to be on that foundation stone. This is why it's very important. So they understood foundation stones. And by the way, if you ever go to Jerusalem and you're fortunate enough to go and go underneath and visit underneath the Temple Mount area, you can actually, the foundation stones of Solomon's temple are still there. And these are the largest foundation stones on earth, larger than the uh, pyramids, the foundation stones of the pyramids. And they are so finely put together that you cannot even put a razor blade in between the stones the way they are laid together. So they would, they would understand what he's talking about, about a cornerstone and a foundation stone. That was very, very important. It was important to their worship. And so he's saying... He is the stone. You know, remember uh, uh, when Jesus says to Peter, you know, he says, basically, he says, you are, you are, you are small rock, but I am the rock. I am the stone. You know, I am the cornerstone. So these are the things how we we build uh, uh, theology upon. And then he says in, in, in verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. Boom. Stop. Park it right there. There is salvation through no one else. Doctrine, statement, Christianity 101. You should highlight that passage. You're going to find it other places. But right there you have it. Is, uh, uh, he is the foundation. He, there, is, there is salvation in no one else. It says, For there is no other name in heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, from heaven, from God, there is no other name, there is no other person. In other words, and this is in the the face to the Jews who were, you know, Moses was the most revered, and David, no, they said none of them uh, are given for salvation. They were men used by God to do a task, but uh, salvation does not come through them. And so it's very important because they revered Moses as the lawgiver, they would follow the the law of Moses and the commandments and these different things. It was very, very much legalistic, a works-orientated uh, uh, theology. 
But again, salvation is through no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we are saved. That is a doctrine statement. Doctrine statement means belief. It also means it's non-negotiable. So when people don't say they're Christian and they don't sign off on that, they are not Christian. It's like trying to say, well, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe he was resurrected from the dead. Or like say, or trying to say he's not God. You know, it, no, you're off the pages of the Bible. That is not Christianity. So, any thoughts, questions on that? You're good so far? Pretty much straightforward. This passage is pretty much, and a lot of Acts is 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 narrative. It's it's narrative history, and it, it's just relating what's going on there. And what I'm doing is just kind of stopping on the theological statements and the things that that impact Christianity for us today and things that we need to pick up and highlight on because this is the story of the early church. How did the early church do it? How were they founded? What did they do? And so it all follows um, out of this teaching. So now verse 13 to 18. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, um, by the way, you know, hold it right there. You know, as Christians, we should be confident in our faith. You know, not 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 uh, apologetic for our faith, but we should be confident in our faith. You know, that doesn't mean that we we are are think we're better than someone else. But you know, if you know who you are, you are confident. If you don't know who you are, then you're not confident. And so, based on the evidence, you know, Peter and John could be confident because they were with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They saw the resurrection. They made mistakes. They went through all this. They were forgiven. They saw all of it. They were there. And so they're very confident in what they're teaching, what they're doing. And it shows by how they're doing it. Right smack dab in the temple, talking to the high priest, and then being thrown in jail, uh, and then still, you know, preaching what they were preaching before they were put in jail. Verse 13. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. I wonder what took them so long to figure that one out, right? Uh, and, and the point there about them being uneducated and untrained men, the uh, <coughs> excuse me, the uh, the priests were trained. They were <coughs> they were trained. They were educated. <coughs> they studied. Uh, you know, they went to early form of what we now know as seminary. And so they, they had education, so sometimes they felt that that education separated them or put them above others, that they were now in a position to tell other people what to do. Uh, and somebody that was uneducated uh, couldn't do that. But they also did the same thing with Jesus because they marveled at Jesus' teaching, and they said, wait a minute, isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph the carpenter? And now he's teaching with, this, with all of this authority. So, verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. And when they ordered them to go aside out of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place 
through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So in other words, the religious establishment desired to silence the apostles. They told them, okay, a noteworthy miracle has occurred. Now basically just be quiet about it. Don't preach as Jesus anymore. Talk about stubborn. Talk about unwilling to to see what's right in front of them. Now think about it in terms of Christianity today, preaching the gospel. You know, sometimes you wonder, why can't people see what's right in front of them? You know, because people, you know, aren't willing to accept what they see a lot of times. People aren't willing to accept something that's different than what their tradition or how they were raised. And and just a little side note, that when you are preaching the gospel to someone and you're going against their belief system, understand it's going to be a tough sell on their side because they grew up, however old they are, believing one particular thing, one particular way. And now when you bring something new, that's why we need the Holy Spirit to shatter all of that uh, belief system that they have and and get to the heart of the issue to where they're willing to look at their sin and repent because they thought it was a different way. And now we're telling them, you know, it's through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And they were... They were ordered not to preach. You know, again, this goes on in the church today. Uh, I, I I know of a, a, a good friend, a pastor of mine. As a matter of fact, he came to this church one time when I was uh, uh, on vacation, and he preached about uh, the underground church where he was ordered by the Communist Party not to preach in Jesus' name. And they threatened his life and the life of his family. And uh, he actually fled the country. He was thrown in jail. Uh, this is going on now, today. This, this, this is happening today. And so this is, uh, again, when they say there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. So you would think this miracle, you would think the power of the teaching would affect everyone. People were listening. People were coming to the Lord, but not everyone. The ones that felt they had the most to lose were the most stubborn, and that was the religious party because they thought that, you know they were going to lose their status, their position, their whatever. You know, because again, in the kingdom of God, there's no status, there's no position. We are all the same. We are all sheep. We are all follow Jesus Christ. Verse nineteen. So this is the response of Peter and John to being told not to preach about Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis which they might punish them, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than forty years old, on whom this miracle of healing had performed. And Peter says, we're not going to stop. John says, we're not going to stop. You can threaten us. You can do whatever. We are not going to stop. Lesson for the church today. We are not going to stop. Uh, we have to preach the gospel. This is what we are called to do. 
Yes. Didn't a famous smart writer put that in one of his articles not so long ago? <laughs> <laughs> I believe so. Would you care to mention his name? Uh, I can't think of his name right now, but he isn't a, a newsletter, right? Yeah. <laughs> the church newsletter. People, people refer to him as a genius. <laughs> so, okay. Amazing. By the way, you can read our church <laughs> newsletters, men's ministry, and mine. You can read them on our church website. Uh, yes. Uh, Peter says we won't stop. We're going to preach the gospel. You know, and they release them because, number one, there's nothing to charge them with. But the other side is all the people are glorifying God and are, 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 are marveling in this. So here you have, you know, the common person, in a sense, saying, yeah, look at this. This is great. They're glorifying God. But the rulers are now saying, no, 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 no. But the people are saying, yes, 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 yes. So, you know, this this causes a great schism. This this causes now a, a lot of problems. And again, you will have this today. You will have people that are in position, that are leading. For whatever reason, they will say it one way, but the people are looking and saying, no, it should be the other way. You know, I mean, again, nothing new under the sun. Uh, and then another little thing here is interesting. I always ask questions in Scripture when I read something or when a detail is put in because I always wonder, okay, why was that detail important for me to know? And the detail is, verse 21, it says, When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which they might punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. Okay, now, now here's a little detail. For the man who was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Now I look at that and I say, well, you know, that scripture could have been complete without knowing about the 40 years. We didn't have to know how old the man was. We weren't told in the beginning, but now we're told uh, uh, he was 40 years old. And so, you know, I, I, I pondered that. And then, and then along the way, I don't know if it was the seminary or reading or whatever, one of the things I came across and I began to realize is that biblically 40 represents, 40 years represents a generation. Yeah, and so what you have here is this man has been named for your entire generation, for your entire lifetime. <clears throat> this man has been lame, and now he's walking and he's praising God, and you won't see it. You won't recognize it. You know, uh, it's, just, it's a generation statement there. Uh, and so <clears throat> you have to look at that. And so it's kind of it's kind of a conviction on the generation, you know, saying, "Look at this! Something that that has been gone on, been going on, is now suddenly changed." Uh, you know, after forty years, after a generation. In other words, it's a new day. Something new is happening. You know, we've, we've turned a page here. We've turned a corner. Uh, so, any thoughts or questions on that? Go okay. It's a whole new spin on being 40. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, verse 23 to 31. And when they, had been, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is thou who didst make the heavens and earth and the sea and all that 
is in them. This is actually a prayer here. Notice the acknowledgement of who, of who God is and what God has done in the prayer. And by whom the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? This is quoting Psalm 2. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his Christ. So right there, they're, 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 they're praying to God, and they're recognizing and making the connection with the Psalm of David in reference to uh, the Lord and, uh, and how they would, they would come against his Christ or his anointed one. Verse 27. We're truly in this city. Now, this city wasn't any city. This is Jerusalem. This is the city of God. This is where the temple was at. It says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, among with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Now, Lord God, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservant may speak thy word with all confidence. You know, this is, is a prayer. It says, notice what's going on, Lord. This is what's happening. Uh, Lord, take note that they're threatening us. They're telling us, you know, we can't preach in your name. Uh, you know, they're, you know, they probably threatened them with jail again and all of this stuff. And so he's putting this in prayer. Uh, verse 29 again, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all Confidence. So in other words, he's saying, Lord, help us to continue to preach your word with the confidence that we have. Verse 30, while thou dost extend thy hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant, Jesus. So again, they're saying that healings and signs and wonders will continue to take place under the name of Jesus Christ. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Because remember, there were people who just came to the Lord, right? So it was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So uh, what does the Holy Spirit do? It gives us confidence and boldness to, to preach the word. Well, notice what happens here. You know, healing occurs... Uh, people don't want that healing to happen because it's a threat to their way, their life, their system, whatever it is. Uh, they throw Peter and John in jail. Uh, they tell them, we're going to release you, but don't be preaching in that name of Jesus any anymore. And they, Peter and John, right to their face, said, well, we're going to continue to do just that. We have to do that. And then when they're released, they tell the people. The people all begin to rejoice in all of this. And uh, then they pray. Uh, to the Lord that they will continue with confidence and boldness to be able to preach uh, the word of God. Uh, and so the prayer is that this next generation would have the boldness and the confidence to go forth because there's a new generation now beginning of believers starting with Acts chapter 2 and we're only a, a few days away from Acts chapter 2 here uh, historically 
So it's it's a new day. It's a new time. It's uh, now this generation, this generation of believers in Jesus Christ, that we would have confidence and boldness. And this is the same thing that that uh, Paul says later on. You know, uh, pray for me that I may proclaim with boldness the word of God. And then he says, and I pray that that you would preach and teach with with, with that with that same boldness. So, any thoughts or comments, questions there before we go to the last part of this? Okay, verse 32. Here's the outcome of the chapter. <clears throat> this will sound a little familiar. Verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claiming that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Sounds like after the first sermon, Acts chapter 2. Everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. You know, the resurrection is very important because you and I cannot say with confidence as believers in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior that one day we will be resurrected if Jesus was not resurrected. He is the antecedent. He is the first of the resurrected he is, uh, you, when, when he says that I live in you and you live in me, what he's saying now is that same power that has raised, will raise him from the dead, that did raise him from the dead, now is in us. And so this is how we, we are justified in making that, that statement. 33 again, with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Abundant grace is God's favor was upon them all, wherever they were, they were going. They were just, they were having favor with a lot of the people. Now realize, they're having favor with people, but there's now still a whole group of people that don't like them. The, you know, the ruling class doesn't like them, and at this point, Rome hasn't weighed in. Uh, Rome, Rome's not too happy with them either. Rome's kind of looking at them uh, from a distance and kind of worry, doesn't want them to the danger for Rome is that that these Christians could raise up and start a civil war and there could be all kinds of problems and things going on. So Rome was looking at, at, at these Christians, you know, as, lo- as long as they were in their place, as long as they weren't causing a ruckus, they were okay. But at some point when it got threatening to Rome's uh, uh, economy and stuff, they were going to have to um, do something. So this is what gets played out later on when they when they destroy the temple and, and a lot of other things. Rome, Rome does. Uh, verse thirty four, for there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph Joseph, a Levite of uh, Cyprian birth who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translate means son of encouragement. This is the same Barnabas you're going to be hearing about later in the in the book of Acts. Uh, who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now this thing with uh, doing this, it's showing how the early church did some things. It shows how the early church kind of organized, how the early church was taking care of, 
of one another. Something new was going on. And this last little line here about he brought a track of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet is something we're going to get into next week with Acts chapter 5 because not everybody was being exactly forthright with all of this and their giving and stuff and uh, judgment is going to happen in Acts chapter 5. But that's where we're going to stop right there. Where uh, they Again, they were kind of having everything in common. They were the, the takeaway here is they were meeting the needs of the people of what was going on. Because also what was happening that historically Israelis, every one of them had a had a had property, owned property in Israel. Because remember in the time of Joshua that each tribe was given a, a section of land in Israel. You know, when you ever see those maps, it's laid out. If you have a Bible with maps in it, you'll you'll probably find that map in there where, you know, uh, the uh, um, Ephraim had, had a track of land, uh, Judah had a track of land, uh, Manasseh had a track of land, all of the different land, all, all had a different uh, thing of land there, so that they would all own a piece of the Holy Land. And so what happened over the years, and especially when Rome came in and stuff, some of that land was taken from them. And so that's why they're sharing here, because they're remembering fact that, you, that as Israelites that they all owned land, that they all owned part of this, they were all part of it and so this is why today uh, if you fast forward to the events that are going on in Israel and stuff and why the, you know, the land, that Israel is tied to the land, they are, are their, their uh, uh, whole essence is tied to the land and so when you're talking about fighting over land and giving of land and all of this stuff over there, sometimes we don't really understand it, but it goes way, way back to the fact that they were all given by God a portion of that land that they were to keep forever. Even if they even if they were sold it, they had what was known as the year of Jubilee, that in the year of Jubilee, any debits, any land had to be returned uh, uh, to the original owner so that no one could permanently own land that belonged to someone else. So that's kind of what's going on here, is they're kind of uh, restoring the fortunes of those that, that no longer had uh, part of that. But it was a spirit of, of unity. It was a spirit of giving. It was a spirit of love. It was a spirit of commonality. Uh, again, what should be the motif of the church? We should not be fragmented, but we should be all together at least in unity and spirit and in, in doing things together so I'm going to hold it right there so it ends with one heart uh, a lot of power and a lot of sharing going on in the church so any thoughts questions on that pretty straightforward it's just historical narrative and so next week we're going to get into some judgment uh, that goes on <clears throat> Some people were not being uh, uh, forthright. They were basically lying, and judgment comes of that. And then later on, when we get to chapter 6, uh, then we're going to get into where deacons come into the picture. Uh, why, why do we have deacons in the church? Well, that's in Acts chapter 6. Then uh, uh, chapter 7, then you begin to get the stoning of, of Stephen, you know, who was one of, the, uh, uh, one of those early leaders of the church who, who stoned for what? giving a good sermon, you know, and then 
chapter 8, then we begin to get into Paul, whose name is Saul, and he's persecuting the, the church. We begin to get into his story. So the first uh, 9, 10, 11, 12 chapters, Peter is the main theological focus uh, of the early church. But once Paul comes on the scene after his conversion, uh, Acts chapter 9, and then where his story really picks up in Acts 11, 12, he becomes the theological uh, leader of the church uh, until his, his death of the early church. So it's, it's during that particular time that the New Testament starts to be written. Realize at this point there is no New Testament. There is oral history of what happened. The apostles are sharing it. But right now, Matthew hasn't written, Luke hasn't written, Mark hasn't written, John certainly hasn't written. James, who writes the first, uh, uh, most likely the first of the epistles, to the church is probably still 10 years away from writing, at least 10 years away from writing that first letter to the church. So there, there is no New Testament at this point. And uh, so when they refer to scripture, when they refer to uh, the law and the prophets, they're talking about the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament is very, very important for Christianity because this is what we're birthed out of. This is what we come through. And this is why this is what we use Especially, again, going back to evangelism, what do we use when we're preaching the, uh, the gospel? We use the Old Testament. We use the laws of the Old Testament to bring a person to conviction. And that's what the laws are for, to bring us to conviction and also point us towards the cross. So, thoughts, questions? We good? Praise God. Let me just close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for this time to study it's coming together lord we thank you uh that you continue to watch over us lord guide us strengthen us uh and be with the church lord not just us locally but your church uh, across the state and across our country across this world lord uh that there's a different type of persecution coming up upon the the church lord and so let us uh be in position lord uh to uh, uh, do what you're doing in the midst of all of this, Lord, that we uh, uh, don't lose, but we actually gain, Lord, and so that we begin to, even now, think about what it is that we're going to do when all of this uh, ends, when this uh, uh, pandemic ends, ends, and when uh, restrictions on gathering end, how are we going to reestablish, put together things, Lord? We need to we need your help and your guidance in all of that now. So let those plans go forth in your name. So, Father, I just thank you, give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And church said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. Thank you. See you next week.
Testing one, two. Testing one, two.